Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Tony Zargami with Keller Williams in Sarasota, Florida. Last year, she, her husband David, and team closed 108 transactions with a total sales volume of $35 million. Her average sales price was $324,000, of which 50% were buyers and 50% were sellers. In her best year, 2016, she sold 116 homes worth $40 million. Tony has a 19-member team, six buyer specialists, three junior partners, one listing specialist director of sales, three full-time operations staff, two virtual assistants, one courier, one sign guy, one chief growth officer, and one chief executive officer. Tony is the co-founder and listing specialist of the Zargami Group. She's been an agent for 10 years and works the metro Sarasota market. In this call, Tony talks about falling in love with real estate as a fourth grade teacher when she fixed and flipped a house one summer, the benefits of shadowing a mentor early in your career, how she fell in with a builder to boost her practice early on, lessons learned from failures and why you want to fail faster, how to create accountability for yourself and team members, keys to successfully working with your spouse, why Tony still personally lists and sells 50 to 60 homes per year. What to say to a seller when you're competing against other agents. Scripts for getting sellers to price their home correctly. How she stopped discounting her commission. Getting more repeating referrals from past clients. Team dynamics and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Tony. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm great, Tony. Thank you so much for joining us today. Tony, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. I would love that. I wanted to say thank you so much for having me on this call. I was honored to be part of this group of of speakers you've had before. So thank you for that. I'm so excited. I can't wait to hear your story. What happened before you got into real estate? Actually, my husband and I are in real estate together. We are both teachers. I was teaching fourth grade. My husband was teaching middle school math, bless his sweetheart. And one summer, we decided to flip a house. We'd been watching HGTV and we were in our 20s. I'm like, we can do that. Let's go flip a house. So we bought a house. We flipped it. We made every mistake you can imagine, including not doing a home inspection, not going underneath the house to see if there were termites, all of that fun stuff. But we did. We flipped a house. We made, you know, $5 on the deal at the end of the day. And I really loved it. I'm like, well, that was kind of fun. And then we both went back to teaching the next year. And I just couldn't get that real estate bug out of my system. And so that next summer, we thought, well, let's do that again. That was a pretty fun adventure. So we did. We did another house that summer wound up selling it. And I really, Mike, I got so passionate about real estate through that process that we had that conversation, like maybe one of us should get into real estate. This is really exciting and fun and different. We both have 
an entrepreneurial spirit, you know, and yet we both like to give back, which is what we thought, you know, teaching, well, teaching did that for us. And so we literally flipped a coin between my husband and I to see who would get into real estate first, because it's scary to give up your real job, you know, and benefits and a salary and everything. And I won. So I got my real estate license (laughs) first. It was about 10 years ago. Thankfully, I was so blessed to get fairly busy fairly early on. And so my husband got licensed and joined me that next year. He taught for one more year after that. And then he got licensed as well. So that's our story before doing real estate full time. Wow, that's a great story. Now, you said you had a pretty quick start. Tell us about that first year. Yeah, my first year, I, I joined a brokerage, a franchise brokerage, and I just latched onto the top producer. I kind of walked myself in there. His name was Chris. And I'm like, Chris, can I just follow you around? Because there kind of wasn't a great training program. I was shown my desk and my phone by the broker and said, good luck, Tony, have fun. I'll see you later. And I'm like, wait, what just happened? You know. <laughs> so I went and asked an agent if I could shadow him, and I did. And he was great to let me help him on some deals. I would go to home inspections for him. He'd give me a referral fee. And that's really how I started was just learning from another agent that was gracious enough and had an abundance mindset to let me in on some of his deals. And that's really where it started. I got a lot of leads in the beginning just from being kind of on duty. You know, while you're at the office, I wasn't busy. So I'd sit on duty and wait for calls and things to come in. So you had a mentor, you did some duty time, some floor time. And then so, so how did it go that first year? How many homes do you think you sold that first year? I started, I got my real estate license in October. And so that first 12 plus months, that first kind of year and a couple months, I think I closed about 22 transactions. Wow. And what had happened in that, yeah, it was pretty exciting and what it had made a lot of mistakes, did a lot of things wrong and that was growing, right? Failure leads to success. And so what happened in that first year is there was a, an independent brokerage that had like one owner and about 12 agents. And I kind of had gotten his eye. Um, And he approached me as sometimes other brokerages do. And he and I had a conversation. It's like, you know, you're really a go-getter and I like what you're doing. And we had done a transaction or two together. And then my husband had joined at that point. So he invited my husband and I to come join him and become partners in that. It's kind of like a small boutique real estate company. Um, So he invited us to come join that. And that's really when we took off. We got the eye of a builder that saw what we were doing. And so I personally started working with a builder as well as doing residential sales. And that's really probably about that second year is when our, our business really took off. And about year five, it kind of fell apart, to be honest with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll talk about happens. that, I'm sure. <laughs> the ups and downs. Yeah, it happens. Well, talk to us a little bit about builders. You said you caught the eye of a builder. What does that mean? And what did that turn yeah. into? Yeah, it was really exciting. I was actually in North Carolina at the time. I'm now in Florida. At the time, I was in North Carolina in Jacksonville, which if anyone knows Camp Lejeune is the largest marine base on the East Coast. Um, We were working in that market and there was a builder that was in Raleigh that wanted to break into the Jacksonville market because our market, it was a bit insulated from everything else that was going on in the country in terms of the market downturn and everything. Which looking back, I think is a good thing. People say, oh my gosh, you got into real estate in 2008. Like, what were you thinking? And I think it was a good thing. I didn't know it was a bad market. I didn't know everything had just, I didn't know enough to be worried about it. So I plowed through, right? Um, so this builder decided he wanted to get into our market because our market was military families moving in and out. It was just a constant flow, a very transient, constant flow of business. And so when he started doing his research of who was doing deals in this town and started calling around and interviewing, he and I clicked. You know, he liked the way we worked. He liked that we were a small firm. We had just a great relationship. And he wound up becoming one of the top 10 builders in North Carolina because of the relationship that we built in the three communities we built out. And I was working with him 
and still buying and selling as well. It wasn't an exclusive, like some builders have you work exclusively for them. I was still able to do everything, which was great. Approximately how many homes were being sold each year through your builder business? Yeah, the builder business was probably about 80. I'd say 80 to 90. For about three years, we had that rolling, about 80 to 90 per year through the builder. That's nice. That really was a nice bump. It was pretty nice. I was on billboards. I felt pretty good about myself. It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So let's give a big picture. How long have you been in the business now? So it's 10 years. I'm at 10 years now. And let's bring it up Mm -hmm. to today. How many homes did you sell last year and what was the sales volume? Yeah. So last year we sold just over 100 homes for about 40 million in production. And I'm going to be really transparent on this call. We went through a big transition in our real estate business, in our real estate mindset. And because of that, we were focused on the growth of our team, which honestly slowed down our production. It was a strategic decision that we made because our goal last year was to close 150 homes and we fell short of that. We sold 108. And because we put a big focus on team building, we we knew that would happen. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to come right back to that in just one second. I do want to talk about that. Your best year, what year was it? How many homes did you sell and what was the sales volume? Yeah, our year, it was the year before that. It was 2016. We sold 116, which got us to over 40 million in volume. Now, let's talk about what you just said a second ago, and that is that you stepped back to build the team and you knew Mm -hmm. that it would slow you down. My assumption is that your team was smaller than in the year you sold 116 homes. How many people were on the team in that year? I think it was 2016 that you sold 116 homes. Mm -hmm. There was about six or seven of us at that point. We had, you know, a couple sales agents. So my husband did production for a few years. He stepped out of that and has been our CEO in growing our team since then. So he and I, and then probably four to five others at that point. Okay, very good. So it was a smaller Mm -hmm. team and you decided to grow the team, put some structure in place. And in the meantime, things slowed down. And I assume you've learned a lot of lessons along the way. You want to share a few of the lessons you've learned in this team growth? Yeah, you know, this one's a little bit hard for me to say because we, as a small, and we're still a small team, we're a team of 20 at this point, which to me still feels small. You know, we are a family. I mean, we are the people I worked with. We would have dinners together. We would babysit each other's children. We would spend, you know, we were a family. And I went to a training one time and one of the people, I'm very learning education based, so I go to trainings all the time. One of the people, the speaker said, you know, the the people that you're working with to get you to 100 transactions are not the same people that will get you past 100 transactions. And at that point, I got really mad at him. I'm like, that is not true. My team is amazing and we are family and we're in this together. We always, all of us have the goal to grow. I mean, what we found is that he was exactly right. The team that's in place to do 100 transactions, you need a higher level of thinking. You need a growth mindset. You need an abundance mindset to get above 100 transactions. And the people that we had in place just weren't They didn't, and not right or wrong, we just weren't all thinking the same way. And so we have almost a completely new team at this point. There's my husband and I and two others that were from that original group that are now part of the team we have now. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So are you saying that the, I think it was three or four people that were on the team before are no longer, did they fade away because you were pushing hard to grow? 
Yes. You know, what we found is that, you know, we have big goals. And if you want to do that, you've got to put accountability in place because, you know, accountability without any kind of consequence, you know, it's just a suggestion, like a standard without a consequence is a suggestion. We had a ton of great suggestions. We just weren't following up with any of them. Like we would love for you to lead generate every day, but if you don't, here's a hug, let's go to lunch, right? And we'd love (laughs) for you. And we would set goals. They're not our goals. We always let our agents set our goals. So your goal is to close three deals a month and you didn't. So, okay, let's babysit your kids. You know, we didn't have any standards. We had suggestions and we realized in order to grow that accountability is love. We're holding you accountable because we love you and because we want you to reach your goal. And a couple of our agents, we call it, they selected themselves out. It's not how they wanted to be in business. They didn't want the level of accountability that's needed to grow and to help even more families. That was a good lesson. Might have been a little difficult, right? Yeah. (laughs) But those are sometimes the best ones. They make us stand up and pay attention. What other type of lesson did you learn in that growth phase? You know, I learned that when you get busy, everyone says this, right? Like real estate's like a roller coaster. You've got three closings and then it goes down and you have no closings. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm great. I'll always be busy. (laughs) Yet it is true. When you take your foot off the lead generation path, you know, or pedal, because you lead generate, lead generate, however you do it, no judgment around that, but you get some deals. You've got three or four pendings and now you are busy. Like you've got to go to the home inspection and you've got to talk to the lender and you've got to negotiate repairs. And so because you're busy, you stop lead generating because these things have to get taken care of. And then when those four deals close 30 or 45 days later, you're like, now what? And we totally fell into that. We all got busy and we were making money and we were having fun and we totally let our foot off the lead generation, you know, of it and, and generating new business for ourselves. But that was a big lesson too. We went a couple months, you know, and we, as a team, you have some overhead. When you run a team, you're running a business, you've got bills to pay couple months that we didn't even come close to making enough money to run our team, which as an owner, you're now dipping into your pocket to keep the lights on in a sense. And then you've got to reassess your commitment to the business. Mike, can I tell you the number of times that my husband and I looked at each other and thought, let's like, let's just you and I sell homes. Let's <laughs> production. We make, you know, it's fine because it's a lot. running a team and, and being kind of a solo agent. They're just, again, neither one is better or worse. They're just different, right? So we said that to ourselves many a time. And thankfully, we've got great business coaches to help us through all of those thoughts. Like, if that's the best for you, great, let's go do that. And yet, is that what you want for your life? So yeah, it, it, a lot of lessons in there. You know, that, that was a question I was going to have for you. And I think you might have started to answer it there. And that is, when you were hitting those rough spots, what prevented you from jumping back in and taking over the day-to-day and running the buyers and sellers around? You know what it was? It was our children, my children. I had, when we got into real estate, it was my husband and I, and then we had a child. Luca's now seven. And so then I thought, okay, do I want to be working evenings all the time again? Because when you work buyers, if you work your evenings, right? And then I thought, okay, I got pregnant with our second, who's almost two. And I thought, okay, do I want to be doing open houses every Sunday? And so just, we got really clear, a lot of clarity around a priority, which for us is our family. And that's different for everyone. Your one thing is different for everyone. My one thing is my family and family time while my children are younger. And being a solo agent, I did not have the flexibility that some people think you get. Like, I'm going to get into real estate because then I can be in charge of my own schedule, right? And I just found that we didn't have as much flexibility when you're doing everything. And that's really what always brought us back. 
So let's have some leverage in our life so that we can make family time important for us. And I assume that that helped you get very focused on the accountability part. It drove you to want to make that work. Let me ask a question real fast. Have you ever taken the DISC personality profile? Oh, absolutely. Where do you score out? Do you want to guess? Do you know the DISC? I'm you guessing you're an I. Are you minutes? an I? <laughs> I'm an off charts I. Yeah. <laughs> yes. it, it sure sounds yeah. like. What's your secondary? I'm a D. I'm above midline on the D as well, which is why I do all listings. I don't actually work buyers anymore. Aha. Uh-huh. So you're an ID and that completely makes sense. So it would be a little challenging for you in your I state for you to want to push forward that accountability, although your D is probably supporting it. When you went to put accountability in place, how did you do it? Can I tell you something? Be really transparent with you again. I'm sure. also the worst at details. I'll just be honest <laughs> about it. I am terrible at details. So accountability and details, I don't love because I want to do my thing. I want everyone to like me. You know, it's just uh, my innate nature. So having help, having a team that I'm accountable to them, that is really what is helpful. Because if I just need to be accountable to myself or maybe one other person, that doesn't work. I'm accountable to my team. I'm accountable to my business coaches. So that that does help because it does not come naturally to me. Did I answer your question? I feel like I totally veered away from your question. No, I I think we're getting there. So you said you work with your husband, David. Does David Mm -hmm. enforce the accountability or is there someone else on the team that does that for (laughs) the team members? I wonder if anyone out there works with their spouse. It's difficult and to work with your husband. Everyone says, how do you do that? And it's difficult because you have your relationship dynamic, your husband and wife and parent dynamic, and you have, he's the CEO of our company. And it's difficult for him to hold me accountable because I take it personally, right? So we do on our team, we have a coach, you know, his, his role on our team is to help coach our agents and everything like that. And so he's my accountability partner because it's really difficult, just to be honest, for my husband to do that with me. I don't take his, not criticism, I don't take his constructive criticism well because I take it personally as a husband, right? When <laughs> right. it's just coming from someone trying to help. Yeah, yeah. Right. Those lines get a little blurred. I understand. And so yeah. let's let's talk about that. You brought that up, working with your spouse. Uh, You've been doing this now. You've been working together for nine years. You must have figured Mm -hmm. out a system that works. What is it? If somebody were to walk up to you and say, I want to get in business with my spouse, what would you tell them? Yeah, we learned this very early on is to define your role, very clearly define your role, your role and your spouse's role, and then don't cross back over. What happened is we're with Keller Williams Realty and Keller Williams very much supports a husband and wife as well as kind of the team structure and growing a team, which is wonderful. And so a lot of what was happening is I was working buyers and sellers and David would sometimes go work with my buyer because I was busy and we were just crossing back and forth a lot. And it got very confusing, I think, for us as well as for our clients. Like, wait, do I call Tony? Do I call David? What's happening here? So We learned from our DISC profile very early on that I was more naturally inclined to work with sellers and he was more naturally inclined to work with buyers. So we defined our roles and did not cross back over. And that has been really helpful for us. We also now will start every conversation, not every, I shouldn't say that. We will start a lot of our conversations with, David, this is a business conversation I need to have with you as your business partner. Because I might be venting about work. We do that sometimes. We go home and we vent about a seller that's not going to do the repair that we need them to do and everything like that. And when your spouse is in a different business, I think they're like, oh, man, that stinks. That seller's being a pain, you know, right? 
Yet when your husband knows the business as well as he does, he wants to coach, which is great. So we've learned to say, look, I need to have a business conversation. I need your advice on how to handle the seller versus I need you as just my husband, just need to vent to you. And I need you to give me a hug and tell me it'll be okay. So we've we say that in the beginning, this is a business talk, or I just need my husband right now. And that really has helped us. And it took us years to figure that out. It's difficult. It is, especially for guys in, in general, because we like to problem solve. So we want to go in there and find a solution right away instead of listening, right? Yes. <laughs> and I love my husband is the best thing in the world. He always wants to fix everything for me. That's the husband in him. He doesn't want me to be frustrated about it. He just wants to fix it. You know, so yeah, it's it's taken a while. We're far from perfect at it. And yet we just have very honest and open communication and we know what type of conversation we're having. Just for curiosity, where does David score on the disc? Uh, He's an SC. (laughs) An SC. Okay, very good. So your opposite ends there. You know, which I think is good. It rounds us out to like a whole person, right? (laughs) There you go. Yeah, two halves of the whole. That's cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes, sir. Okay, so we've got this team dynamic. We've got the husband and wife dynamic. By the way, is there any Mm -hmm. other advice on that? Because a lot of people ask, they want to work with a spouse or a close friend, anything else. You said you define the roles, you're doing listings, he's doing buyers. Did that change? Did those roles change as you moved along and developed the team? Absolutely. My role actually has not changed all that much, which I kind of love. I love working with sellers, you know, as as frustrating as they can be sometimes. I I love it. I love working with sellers. So pretty early on in our team building, we brought on a buyer's agent um, to work with our buyers. And David moved into the CEO. Let's build this team. Let's build this business role. So David works with very few clients now, like, you know, close sphere or a past client or family member. He probably does five or six clients per year. So yeah, once we started bringing on buyers, agents to work with our buyer clients, that's when our roles shifted. Although mine stayed pretty consistent over the last handful of years. Are you still in production? Are you still taking listings? Yeah, I'm getting off this call and going to a listing appointment. So yes, <laughs> I absolutely take listings. Yeah, I, I personally sell probably about 50 to 60 homes a year. That's fantastic. Yeah. So you're, you're listing you. how many homes? What, one a week? Uh, one to two a week? I took 10 or 11 listings last month. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. How do you do that? How are you taking 10 plus listings a month? You know, I was just listening to a podcast and it kind of clicked with me just yesterday, actually. And they said, you know, I'm a one trick pony, but I'm really good at my trick. And that kind of is me because I don't necessarily work with buyers anymore. We have a full operation staff. I kind of don't do the details of the contract. I'm not allowed to anymore. (laughs) So my one trick, something I've gotten really good at over the last couple of years is doing a, a really great CMA, doing a really great listing presentation and building strong rapport and then getting the result. Also really good with client care after you closed. We are not transaction-based. We are relationship-based. And so that's something that I pride ourselves on or, you know, our, our client events and appreciation parties and things like that that we do. So I've just gotten good at it because it's all that I do. My focus is not pulled in a lot of different directions. And again, not good or bad, right or wrong. It's just the path we've chosen. We're a team of specialists. I'm a listing specialist. As a listing specialist, uh, how often are you on competition with another agent to get the listing? A lot. Our market, there's 7,000 agents in our market. And it's that 80-20 principle, probably more 90-10. There's probably 10 of us that are doing a good number of the business. I'm up against the same three or four agents, probably about 50% of the time they're interviewing agents. 
How have you learned to compete against those common three to four agents? Mm-hmm. You know what I say a lot, and, and this is just, it just comes from my gut, is a lot of times other agents will say, well, this company, blah, 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 and that agent, da, 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 da. And so they talk a little, and I've heard this from clients, you know, well, they said this about your, about Keller Williams or blah, blah, blah. So what I always say is, you know, we're not better than any other company. We're just different. And here's how we're different. So I learned not to talk down or negatively about any other company, even on the back of my head, I think we do things better. I never say that to the client. You know, here's why we're different. I also am very question-based. A lot of agents in our market, we're a fairly high-priced point market, have a very big ego. I sell million-dollar properties and luxury and all of that. And so they spend a lot, and this is feedback I've gotten from clients. Other agents spend a lot of their appointment talking about themselves and their production and how great they are and all of that. We switched over. I send a pre-listing packet out and I call it my how to impress your seller email. That's not what I say to them, but that's what it is. So I send out a lot of information before my listing appointment and I tell my client, you know, like this email, I hope you'll read through it, this, you know, information before I get there. That's all about me and how great I am and how many houses I sell. And they usually laugh because when I come over tomorrow to talk to you about listing your home, that meeting is going to be completely about you. So my pre-listing packet, again, right or wrong, it just works for us, is our marketing, everything that we do. And my appointment with my client is question-based. It's about them and their goals. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Do you have a set list of questions that you're going to ask them, or do you roll with the punches based on their responses to your very first question? That is a great question, and it's really both. So it's really both. There's a couple of main topics I need to get out. Oh, and before I go over there, guys, one thing I learned, ask them. So, you know, Mike, when I come over tomorrow and I've not done my research yet, do you have a thought in mind of what you'd like to see your home sell for? I always want them to give me a number before I go over there. So I know going in, if I'm going to have a price objection, if they say $200,000 over market value, I know that I need to really, I need to ask questions about their understanding of the market, right? So that's a a really strong question to ask in your pre-qualifying phone call. So yeah, I always want to know motivation, 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 motivation. It always comes down to why are you selling? And here's the thing. I don't take every listing. If their motivation is not there or they want to overprice their property, I spend too much time and effort and money, honestly, to put into a listing that's not going to sell because they want to overprice it. So motivation is huge. Questions about understanding the market is really big as well as their time frame is really big as well. And make sure the home is in a show ready condition. You know, there's competition out there. We've got a, we're entering a beauty contest and a price war. And we've got to win both of them. So we have strong conversations around that as well. Where do you see, when you're out on that listing appointment, where's the biggest hangup? Where's the biggest challenge you typically have to work through? Price, price and price. (laughs) (laughs) I changed my vocabulary and this was really helpful for me. I don't say, you know, here's the comp we're going to look at. Here's the comparables we're going to look at because 
no house compares to that seller's house. Like they just put up crown molding six years ago. So their house is worth $9,000 more than the comparable down the street, right? So I've taken that word out of my vocabulary and I say relevant properties. So I'm like, here's the relevant properties we're going to talk about in terms of yours, because here's what other buyers are looking at, right? That was a change for me to, to change that vocabulary has been really helpful. And then it comes back to questions because, you know, I know it all and I'm an expert in my market, right? And yet if I just tell them all this information, they just think I'm a know-it-all, right? And they think my ego is getting in the way. So you have to ask them questions, you know, like based on these relevant properties that we're looking at in this market analysis, where do you think we should price the house? And when they tell you they want to overprice it by $200,000, which happened to me yesterday in a listing appointment, I say, okay, so based on this data, tell me what information you have that I don't that's making you think your property in today's market will sell for $200,000 more than every other property in the community. So when they come up with the answer, then they'll get buy-in. They've got to weigh in before they can buy in. And if you're just talking, 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 they don't have buy-in. Well, what happened yesterday? Did they talk themselves back down or not? They did. I got signed listing paperwork at the price at market value. So. so when you asked them that question of what information, what do you have to back up this higher price? What did they say? Their house had more square footage, really did not. Some sellers get very, in our market at least get very hung up on price per square foot, which is a factor in pricing your property. It's just not the only factor. And their newly remodeled kitchen, they thought, was fantastic. And it was adorable. Their newly remodeled kitchen was from 2012. I'm like, that's not really newly remodeled. (laughs) So it really came down to just questions. They didn't know the market. So going in, that's what they thought. And once I showed them the different data through my market analysis I had done, they came to that realization that, look, if if you want to sell at $200,000, over market value, I'm just not the right agent for you. And I've said, I said it yesterday, I've said that before, because I say this a lot too, you know, it's not my job to make the market. My job is to interpret the market. And you know what, Mike, Mr. Seller, it kind of doesn't matter what you want to sell your house for. It doesn't matter what your mortgage payout is. It doesn't matter what you think market value is. What actually matters is what a ready, willing, able buyer will pay in today's market for a home like yours. And here's the data that is giving us that exact answer. When I say that, it usually clicks for them. Nice. Now, do you ever bring in the issue or the challenge of the appraisal? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yes, I absolutely do. You know, when I sell a listing, I've got to sell it three different times, essentially. I've got to sell it to a buyer and buyer's agents, right? I've got to sell it to a home inspector, and that's why we need to get it in a in a sale-ready condition, I got to sell it to an appraiser. You know, Mr. Seller, if you're going to overprice by even $10,000, if you think you need to overprice it, we're going to come up against a low appraisal. And then what is your option? Because if the buyer has a finance contingency, this home appraises $10,000 low, and we either need to lower our price by $10,000 or the buyer has an out and will walk away. What does that mean for moving your family forward? Let's have that conversation now. So yeah, Thank you for reminding me of that. Great point. You use a phrase, you tell the seller they're overpricing it. You lay it right there in front of them. You know, I've gotten a little bold in my old age of 38. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of do because it's uncomfortable. I'm just going to be direct. The pricing conversation can get very uncomfortable. But you know what? Every Tuesday, I call my sellers. I call it Tony's Tuesday check-in. I don't like it. It's my least 
favorite part of my job. Because when we're not under contract, they say, what are you doing to market my home? Why aren't you doing more open houses? Why has my house not sold? And when I overprice a property, the answer is always because we're not priced right and they don't want to hear that. They think I'm not doing my job. So I've learned to have this direct conversation at my listing appointment rather than these super uncomfortable calls every Tuesday. Because what winds up happening is that sometimes I don't make that call on Tuesday because I don't want to talk to them because I haven't sold their house and they don't want to hear about price, right? And that's not good service, you know? So I've learned to just be pretty direct in the beginning. So your accountability to your current sellers of making that call each Tuesday has made you a stronger listing agent at the time that you take the listing when it comes to price. Yeah, I used to want to take every listing because here's the thing, it grows my listing inventory and it feels good to take a listing. And if you tell someone that you'll price your property wherever they want to, they'll sign with you right then and there. So that feels easy in the moment. And yet it gets so hard after that moment. So hard. Do you ever take an overpriced listing? Yeah, I probably do. And I think <laughs> I think I do because I think over time I'll be able to talk them down. And I never can. Then we have super uncomfortable conversations and things like that. So I'm not perfect. I do. I let them outscript me. When I take an overpriced listing, it's because the seller has outscripted me. Just flat out. That's just flat out what it is. And so it happens. It happens from time to time. I have a, I talked to her this morning. <laughs> Had a conversation with one of my son, and it's only like ten grand. It's not much. We've had twelve showings in the past week and no offers, which means that we're not priced properly. Because twelve showings and no offers means we're not priced properly. And so we had that had that conversation this morning. <laughs> That's part of the business. Yeah, I don't have a price reduction yet. I'm I'm still on it. <laughs> That's good. So. Thank you for talking about price. I assume on the listing appointment, another challenge area is commissions. Without telling us what your commission rate is, do you run into problems where sellers ask you to lower your commission? And if so, how do you handle it? Nope. No, I'm just teasing. (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, I think sometimes sellers just think they have to ask that question. So no, I I just joke. But no, no is is a full sentence. So you sometimes can say that. If I'm allowed to, I'm happy to share. We have a tiered commission structure. Would you like me to share that? Sure. So I know commissions aren't said and, you know, no one get me in trouble for any of this. But and that's what I tell my sellers. You know, we actually have a flexible commission structure because not one commission fits for everyone. So my commission ranges from 4 to 7%. 7%, Mike, that is if we come in and have to do a full staging on your property. So if my team comes in, we're actually moving couches, we're hanging up pictures, we're, you know, changing out light fixtures, if my team actually comes through and stages your property, that commission is 7%. 4% to my team, we offer out 3% to a cooperating broker. But you know what? I can tell from the condition of your property, we're not going to need to do that. The next level of commission is 6%. And that's when 3% comes to us as a listing firm and we offer out 3% to a cooperating broker. To be very honest with you, that's usually where the deal will shake out. The next commission structure is at 5%. And the way that that works out is if we bring the buyer to our listing, the commission, and there's not another agent, not a a Cobro on the other side, we'll do that for 5%. So the buyer comes to us through an open house or a sign call, or they find your listing online, that's just a win-win for everyone. So the commission can be 5%. That happens a lot on our team. We have a lot of agents looking for buyers for you. We also have 4%. So once we're active on the market, Mike, if your brother's cousin's sister's mother says, hey, I wanted to buy a house in Sarasota, Florida, your house would be perfect for me. If you source the buyer, 
and there's not an agent on the other side of the transaction, we'll do that for 4%. Because again, that's just a win-win-win for everyone. So the commission is between 4 and 7%. Does that work for you? Fantastic. And so what do people typically choose? Well, they kind of don't choose either of them. They're just usually good with it. And I have them sign it in my listing appointment. And then we just figure out where we fall. It is mostly the split between the co-broke. So it's usually 3% to us and 3% to the co-broke is usually where it ends up. So it just depends because I don't know until we're active and we start doing you know, our marketing and our open houses. I don't know if we'll find the buyer. I don't know if you'll find the buyer as the seller. So your listing is just pre-written up or with those four statements based on how that buyer is going to come in. Now, the one difference, though, mm-hmm. is between the six and the seven, whether you were or weren't going to do staging, do you make that choice there at the listing appointment and then say scratch out one or the other? Not really. So here's my little trick. I have a, a person on my team that actually does staging for us. She's a certified redesign consultant. After I do my listing appointment, she'll go in, have a conversation with them about what we need here's my little trick. I'll say, look, I'm like, I've enjoyed you so much that we're actually going to do the the 7% level of service, but we're going to give it to you for six. And they think you're the best thing ever. Sure. I I was wondering why you did that. That makes a lot of sense that you pushed a premium price. And then what you do is you're able to step back off of it and still provide that service. This sounds a lot to me like the old Russell Shaw, no hassle listing program. And and it sounds like you've taken it and modified it for your market. And that's fantastic. It sounds like it's working really well for you. So my assumption then is that most people end up at your number three spot, your sixth spot. Absolutely. I very rarely discount my commission. And that really has just come about in the last year or two, honestly, because I was very uncomfortable with that commission objection. I didn't have the confidence really to overcome it. Um, And and it's been about a year or two. So I I failed a lot of times and lowered my commission a lot. I did. I'll admit it. By putting in this flexible commission plan, did that help you have more confidence? Was it before you were having challenges? It was because you were sitting on a single number? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of agents in our market, and I'm sure other markets, will discount their commission. So I would do the normal script of, you know, that that makes me nervous, Mr. Seller. It's the, the other agent you're interviewing. You know, their first negotiating tactic is the thing they show you is the, the only thing they, they know how to do is lower the price. Is that who you want negotiating for you? So I learned all those scripts and that I still find I was getting outscripted by my sellers. Because look, I'll hire you today, Tony, but you got to do it at 5.5. And so that's when I, I kind of needed a crutch, actually. I think I needed a crutch and that flexible commission structure really helped get gave me that crutch I needed. And now I, I don't worry about it at all. Commission is not something that concerns me ever. Oh, that's great. So you... You basically set the expectations earlier. You took the first punch. You presented it out there before they had the opportunity to come back at it. That's pretty smart. Yes, sir. Thank you. I borrowed it from someone else. I did not come up with that. Full disclosure. (laughs) (laughs) Most things are all out there. It's a matter of taking it and modifying it for our needs and our business and practice. But let's do this. Let's switch gears real quick. I want to talk about your lead generation. You said that's really critical. One of the big areas of leads for you, if I understand correctly, is past clients' sphere of influence, repeating referrals from that group. What percentage of your business is that? I understand it's about 60%. Is that true? It probably is. Yeah, repeat and referrals from our sphere, from our past clients, from our vendors that we work with. We send our home inspectors, our electrician, our title companies, our attorneys, our lenders. We send them more business than almost anyone else in our market. We're blessed enough to be able to help that many families. 
that they in turn send us a lot of business, which is wonder our largest closing ever was over $3 million came from a vendor, a wow. vendor that works with hundreds of real estate agents. Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. That's pretty cool. What percentage of your business is coming from your vendors? I do not know the answer to that. My husband that runs our business would know that. So I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Let's focus on past clients and sphere of influence. I assume you're staying in front of those people over the course of a year. Could you tell us what you're doing over 12 months from January to December to stay in front of people? Yeah, we do four client appreciation events every year. I would love to up that. And yet right now our capacity is to do four. So what we're doing is we do a uh, Thanksgiving pie giveaway. So we do a quick little video. We blast it out to our entire database. We say, would you like pumpkin or apple? The Saturday before Thanksgiving, we set it up at our office. We order, you know, 100, 200 pies from a local bakery. And our clients come and pick up their pies. That has been so fun. We love doing our pie giveaway at Thanksgiving. Once you've set it up once, it's fairly easy to do. Um, we also do a movie night or a movie day where we go to our, one of our local theaters and we rent out the theater and we invite all of our clients to come and we'll pay for their tickets and give them you know, money for the concessions and everything like that. And that is also fun because you've got time to socialize before and after and you've got an activity like you're watching a movie. So that's great. We also do a car wash. So there's a car wash right down the street from our office. That's amazing. And we'll have our clients come and they drive through and then they get out while they detail the inside of the car. So you've got 10 minutes or so to talk to them and we have coffee and donuts and everything. And we, because of the volume we do, probably, you know, 80 or so people go through that. The car wash gives us a great discount on that. And then the other appreciation event that we do is a pizza giveaway. One of the pizza places in our market will allow us to come in and invite our clients, you know, just from four to seven, come on in, grab a pizza for your family. So those are the events we're doing right now. They all cost less than $800, I would say, and the return on them is amazing. And I assume that the reason you're doing these events is it gives you a positive reason to touch base with your past clients and sphere of influence. Instead of begging for mm -hmm. business, you're inviting them to an event. Yeah, absolutely. And we always invite them to bring a referral. Like with the pie giveaway, if you whip us up a referral, you also get a can of whipped cream. Cheesy, I know, and yet it's really fun. <laughs> so we always invite you to invite someone to come with you to one of our events. And when you're doing these events, are you getting immediate results? Are you getting immediate business or is it happening more over time because you're building the relationship? Like, I think it's really both, which both are valuable. I need closings today and I need them next year. So I really think it's both. Uh, very good. Just a quick question. How many people are in your database of past clients and sphere of influence? So we have thousands in our database. I'd say we're probably over a thousand, maybe 1500 of past clients sphere of influence at this point, I would say. Can I give a piece of advice? If anyone is new into real estate listening to this conversation, something I failed at miserably was to start my database earlier. I didn't start my database until years into my business. My database was my phone. Because you're sitting at closing, you're like, I'm going to remember these people forever. We just spent six weeks together, you know, or and I just didn't. I just didn't. And I wish I would have kept track of my database and communicated with it better earlier on in my career, for sure. Early on, we're so hungry for business and the next deal that we forget about the future. Yes. And it's all sitting in that database, right? It absolutely is. Well, Tony, let's switch gears again. Let's talk about your team. You said you've been building out the team. Yeah. Could you do us a quick overview of who's on the team? We're looking for structure positions, titles, and responsibilities? 
Yes, absolutely. So David, quick little um, org chart. David is our CEO of our company, so he kind of runs and manages everything. We also have a chief growth officer, and his role is to bring new talent onto our team in terms of operations staff, in terms of producing agents. We're looking for a digital media producer to join our team right now to help us boost up our social media. So our growth officer is in charge of kind of like a human resources director, bringing in talent and then making sure the talent we have on the team has a training structure, a schedule, all of that. So we have chief growth officer. Um, We have myself as the listing agent slash director of sales. And then we have buyers specialists. We have five, six buyers specialists on the team that work with all of our buyers. We also on our team have three junior partners. And what our junior partners are, they come in and they lead generate. They, they lead generate about five hours a day. Wow. And I know some of you probably just, yeah, you probably just fell over, right? <laughs> and yet when you can learn that skill of lead generation, they're calling circle prospecting or listing, they call for sale by owners and expired. When you can learn lead generation that early on in your career, you build a pipeline like no one's business, right? So we also have three junior partners. We also have three full-time operations staff in terms of account managers, things like that. We also have a field coordinator that comes in every Tuesday, Thursday, and she kind of just runs errands for us. She'll pick up lock boxes and go to title and grab, you know, closing documents or run to staples, things like that. We adore her. I also have a sign guy, my dad is our sign guy. So my dad installs and takes down all of our signs for us. And then we have two virtual assistants that work with our team as well. Wow, that's a great crew that you're building out there. That's really interesting. These junior agents, they sound like somebody else might call them an ISA, an inside sales agent. They're prospecting. But it sounds like you're using this as a career track for them to move into a full-time agent. Is that the plan? Do they do this for a certain period of time? Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head. We have goals of once you identify this many nurtures, you graduate into the next phase of the program, which is now you go and shadow a buyer specialist. Let's start working with some buyers. Let's start scheduling appointments. Let's get you into the multiple listing service and fumble your way through that. Well, you have a mentor who has done this before, right? So yeah, your junior partner progression is to get into being a buyer specialist. And then your progression from there is to let's do some listings. So you can do everything. You can work with buyers. You can work with listings. We're very firm believers in let's master your one thing and then build on another. You know, when you enter real estate, and even if you've been doing this for a long time, a bit like drinking from a fire hose, right? There's so much that you have to do and learn and process. So what we've worked on doing is turning off that fire hose for a bit. Like, let's master this. And then let's turn that water back on and let's master this and turn the water out, you know, so it, it helps with that overwhelming that sometimes agents feel in the beginning. How long should an agent expect to be a junior agent partner before they move into being a buyer agent? Uh, it's probably about two to three to four months, I would say. Very good. And you're just getting this going. Has it been working well? It's been amazing. Our first junior partner that joined us three and a half, almost four months ago, he's out with one of our buyer specialists today showing properties and they love it. They love it. The thing about running a team is that we, David and I have to make sure that our vision and our umbrella is big enough so that our agent partners, so that their dreams and their growth can fit within that, right? That's a problem we had before. I don't think our vision was big enough for everyone else's vision to fit in that. So some people want to be an ISA forever and that's amazing. 
some people want that growth and want to be able to excel and try new things. And so we've created a path for that. If you want to stay a junior partner forever, fantastic. If you want to work with buyers forever, fantastic. And that there's always room for growth and movement and improvement on our team, if you want it. Well, are you profitable? <laughs> we are. Yes, sir. Uh, very good. What we've done, though, Dave and I are very blessed. We take a lot of our profit and we put it back into growing our team and providing resources for our team to make their life easier. We're just investing in a new lead generation strategy to bring them even more leads. So, uh, You're in the growth phase. That's awesome. So just for, for yes. somebody listening, they're thinking about growing. What type of net profit margin should they be uh, shooting for? What have you been able to achieve? Like, that's a great question for David. That's terrible that I don't know the answer to that. I know all my listing numbers, <laughs> if you want to know any of those. Um, I believe that our, I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't even want to say anything incorrectly. I'm so sorry, listeners, that I don't know the answer to that. No problem. You know, I just, I got to ask because you brought it up. What percentage yep. of the listings you go out on do you actually get signed? It's about 74%. And I would say the reason for that is I'm a little bit selective about some of my listings. I don't win every one that I want. I definitely don't win every one that I want. And yet, because I'm a bit selective and, and don't take overpriced listings or people that don't show that they've, you know, that motivation, uh, I'm in the low 70s. I usually hover somewhere around there. Well, Tony, what drives you? You know, the motto on our team, our mission is to move families forward. And so what that means is it means that, you know, when, when I have a for sale sign in the house, it's more than just a for sale sign in a front yard. It means that that family is making a change, right? And something is changing in their life. They're getting a bigger house because they're expecting a baby. They're downsizing because their children are in college. So whatever way you look at it, we're moving that family forward. We're also moving families forward on our team, right? Like my team is responsible for 15 children. Between all of us, we feed 15 little mouths, right? <laughs> so that's not a responsibility I take lightly. We're moving our team members. We're moving their families forward. And so that is absolutely what drives me, is being able to help people with their growth. Tony, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Um, fail. It is okay. You're going to fail a lot and you're going to make mistakes. And my advice is to fail fast and fail often. And don't let that failure hold you back. Making mistakes is actually a good thing. I think I said it earlier. A failure will lead to a success because when you make that mistake and you learn from it, you're not going to make it again. So fail forward, fail often, and then move forward. My other piece of advice is stop getting ready to get ready to get ready to go. You will spend five days working on your business card because that's more comfortable than getting out there and generating some business, right? Just get out there and do it. Even if you're newer, that's okay. My first couple deals were probably a mess and yet they bought their properties or sold it. We're good, right? So just get out there and do it. Do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Oh my gosh. I find when I have these conversations, I learn so much. I listen to these conversations. Even as a top producing agent, which I put in air quotes, you know, I love to listen. To, I learn something new every time. Some of the questions you asked me, Mike, made me pause and think like, that's something I need to learn and get better at. So, and I think anything like this is super valuable. You've got to be learning based always. Well, Tony, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? You know, I just wanted to 
Thank you again. It is an honor, really, to even be asked to do something like this. I'm humbled by it, and I was excited by it. So I just want to say, whether you've been in real estate for five minutes or five years or 25 years, just maintain your excitement and your passion for it. And when you're frustrated today because that seller and that something small, you know, but feels big at the time, I get it. I had it this morning with a seller. Just keep that big picture in mind. Like you're making a difference in the lives of people. This is one of the biggest transactions they'll ever go through. So please keep that big picture in mind and keep your excitement and your passion for this industry. It's so important. Well, Tony, your passion for real estate is still glowing strong. From the excitement you experienced flipping your first house to mastering the listing process to building and motivating a team, you're charging ahead, making mistakes, learning, adjusting, and embracing the concept of failing faster while you fail forward. You're building a strong practice based on the concept of lifelong client relationships over momentary customer transactions. I see a bright future ahead. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 265 homes last year sponsoring large community events. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV real estate agent lead generation television and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.